Salwabona, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. I'm U.S. Marketing Manager Jim Clark. In each episode, we explore some aspect of South African wine. We talk with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry, and we also give a sommelier a chance to share their impression of the wines. The mountains of the Western Cape are famous for their natural beauty, unmatched in the world of wine. Lesser known, perhaps, are some of the elevated valleys and plateaus that are scattered in amongst these mountains. These areas are home to some of South Africa's most exciting and often new, or at least newly appreciated, vineyards. More and more winemakers are exploring the benefits of growing grapes at higher elevations. But we're actually going to start with a producer whose family has been doing it for decades. Hey, mine, David Nivert from the beautiful Cedarburg Winery up in the Cedarburg Mountains. This is the highest lying vineyards in South Africa, situated over a thousand meters in altitude. It's just one of those phenomenal regions, and it's basically in a big wilderness reserve. So there's no other vineyards around us. The closest vineyards, roughly about 80 kilometers, say 40 miles from us. And this is a completely unspoiled area. Cedarburg is in our family since 1893. The first people arrived from the south as missionaries, the first Nivots. And they farmed about 70 years with tobacco and sheep up in the mountains. And then my grandfather started planting the first fruit in the 50s, 1954, mainly apples and pears. And then in the 60s, table grapes, because this region, it's much lighter than the rest of South Africa for table grapes. So in those days, before exports, they were on the market at a very favorable time, much lighter than the rest of South Africa. And then he planted the first wine grapes in 1972, made the first wine in 77. And then the main focus was always on fruit production. I think people thought he was completely crazy when he started planting the first red varietals, late ripening Cabernet and Shiraz, or in those days, much more Cabernet and Shannon. But I've studied the culture and the knowledge as well, and I came back in 1998. And then we start changing the whole property 100% from fruit to just vineyards. There's a lot of advantages of high altitude. First of all, it's really cool continental climate. If I say this is the only real cool continental climate spot in South Africa, that's why it's also the winery with its own wine of origin, Cedarburg wine of origin, because it's completely different from the rest. So probably one of the biggest advantages is the big difference between day and night temperatures. In summer, a hot day can reach 90 to 93 degrees Fahrenheit. But the same night will cool down to about 50, 54 degrees Fahrenheit. So massive difference between day and night temperatures. So you've got a very long hanging time. And the big thing about altitude, you've got no heat waves at this elevation. So your grapes really get beautiful, physiological, right? There's no diseases. There's no downy mildew and millibuck, the two biggest wine diseases on the planet, don't occur up in Cedarburg. And that's just because of isolation. But that's the real advantages of high-altitude vineyards. We work with exceptionally good quality fruit. I haven't seen one rotten berry on this property in the last 23 years. But that's just because completely virus-free, completely disease-free, and we just work with amazing fruit. The challenges at this stage is frost. Our biggest problem specifically with global warming as well is it's not that our maximum peaks get higher. Our minimum peaks, they get colder. It's directly correlated or related to 
humidity as well. So the air is drier. So frost don't occur at minus two anymore. Frost occur at plus two, five. And we've lost a lot of grapes in the last five, six years. My grandfather would always tell me, you will get frost every seven years up in the Cedarburg. We know we will get frost every year. We've installed the first very high technology frost fans up in Cedarburg. It's the first for South Africa on a wine farm. But that's the only security that we've got is um, we must manage our risk of frost. Otherwise, it would be impossible to farm anymore. But that's the only relatively big challenge at this stage. At Cedarburg, they've had the opportunity to work with high elevation vineyards for quite a while. But in the past couple of decades, other producers both big and small, are exploring similar spots in different areas of the Western Cape. Anthony Rupert purchased his high-altitude farm, Altima, in 2008. I'm Gary Baumgarten. I'm the managing director of Antony Rupert Wines in South Africa in Franschhoek. Our biggest holding is the Franschhoek holding, which is quite substantial. That is uh, three farms next to each other, the old Bellingham farm and Lomarans and Klein Normandy. And then we got a farm in Wellington, which is Olifant's Kop. And then we got a farm in Rivex Refir in the Swatland. And then we got a farm in Darling called Ruderist. And that's very close to the ocean. And then we've got our farm Altima close to Valizdor, which is very cool climate, high elevation vineyards. They were looking for the old vines around the Cape, and they then flooded into that part of the world, and he saw this vineyard, and it was owned by the Ovenstones at that stage, and they just apple and pear farmers, and he made them an offer because they wanted to sell that piece of ground, and he bought it and then pulled out all the pears and apples and started farming with the vineyards. It was a Sauvignon Blanc, the, that, the Ultima Sauvignon Blanc that we make. It was at the original vineyard is still there. All the other vineyards were pulled out and have been replanted back to Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, a small amount of Pinot Gris, and that is basically what we got there at the moment. It was 720 meters above sea level where it starts, and it goes all the way up to 980 meters above sea level. So what we have now done is, because the Sauvignon Blanc is quite an old vineyard, we took cuttings of that vineyard because it gives such a great flavor profile. We had all the material cleaned up so that there's no virus infection in these vineyards. And we then had cuttings remade by Vititech, and those vineyards were planted two years ago because we were very worried about the dieback in two of the blocks of Sauvignon Blanc, these old older blocks. And what is absolutely mind-blowing is that we've gone now into the third season this year and took our first crop of these young Sauvignon Blanc vineyards. And they've got a much better flavor profile than the older ones. It's just incredible that a young vineyard can give you so much flavor and fullness. But we planted it completely differently. We did Eschela or posted vine versus VSP. And we finding the posted vine gives us much more flavors in the product than with the VSP. Why? Because the sun 
runs around the posted vine where the VSP, you get the sun baking in the morning and baking in in the afternoon onto the fruit zone. So it's actually very interesting to see the differences in the flavor profile of the old vines and the new vines, which are cuttings of these old vines. It's absolutely amazing. But what we did was we also planted these new vineyards on exactly the same slopes that the old vineyards were. But these new vineyards, uh, where the old vineyard is down at 720 meters, this new vineyard is very close to 860. I'm Duncan Savage. I've got a little winery called Savage Wines down here in sunny South Africa. We've got a little setup in Salt River in the heart of the city of Cape Town. We make some small, very hand-attended to wines, sourcing grapes and leasing vineyards from all around the beautiful Western Cape. So it's nice to talk to a little bit today about some maritime versus altitude and, and some of the elements that make our wines interesting and I think the terroir of South Africa interesting. We're producing two wines from the Picanese Curve, the first being the Grenache-based wine. When we started working with this vineyard, the vineyard is obviously only so big and we share a portion of that vineyard with a good friend. And the idea was to make a straight Grenache. And the first vintage, we've been working with that vineyard initially. We didn't work from the start with it, putting it into bottle on its own, we, we needed to get to know it first a little bit. So we were introduced to the block through a good friend and started working with the farmers. We hit it off. And the first few vintages, we blended Grenache into the Savage Red as we were trying to get to understand the dynamic of the site. Come 2017, we had decided we felt comfortable with the environment up there. We felt comfortable that we were starting to understand the site a little better. So that was the first vintage that we decided to bottle the wine that is Thief in the Night. And the idea with Thief in the Night is that we wanted the wine to be Grenache-focused. There's an old Sinso vineyard and a middle-aged Syrah vineyard close by, so we always thought we'd possibly include little bits of those, but try and put Grenache on label when we could. But obviously what happened with the drought is the grape crop was less than half. So we weren't able to fill Fudra, do things like that, so we picked more Sinso, we picked more Syrah. Not that it was a bad thing. The Sinso vineyard across the road from the Grenache vineyard is incredible. It's a beautiful vineyard. I think that Darling and Picanese Clue of Sinso are two of the best examples of Sinso in South Africa. But we're going to see this year for the first time, 2021 vintage will be for the first time Grenache on label. So we've seen that dip in the crop and now we've seen it come up. So we're super chuffed that we can actually do that now. And it's fantastic that we can actually showcase, because we've talked for so long about Picanese Cliff, the elevation, the solar radiation, that diurnal shift, all those elements we've discussed today. But then we've shown people a blend. And yes, it's a blend from the same site, but it'll be bloody nice to showcase for the first time in 2021, Grenache from the Picanese Cliff in the Thief in the Night packaging, which is fantastic. And then the other one is the Not Tonight Josephine, which is the straw wine from Tiruk. And again, that was never planned. I've worked with the site for years, and they just weren't using the drying racks the one year. And I said to Roger, who's the consultant there, and Shelley, the owner, can I use the drying racks and can I buy some shit? So they said, yes, but you can only get from this vineyard. And I thought, well, that's actually perfect because the vineyard is right next to the drying racks. And it just so happened that it was this vineyard with a fantastic acidity. So there was no real crazy story. And we happened to wade through the bushes and stumble onto this vineyard in the middle of nowhere. I've been past the bloody vineyard so many times. It just happened to be 
perfect for straw wine, I think, by chance. So that's been a great experience because it's an incredible site. That It's a site that I think has got massive potential. So the straw wine has been a fun project working with a great site and nice people. And it's been a frustrating project because the 2019 we didn't bottle because it was completely crap. We couldn't get the damn thing to stop fermenting. And then normally the vintages, we can't get the stuff to ferment enough. 2019, I don't know what was going on there, but some power yeast got involved. So we didn't bottle that because the alcohol was a bit stiff. So it's very much for us, it's something that we want to keep doing for the next couple of years to understand that dynamic and figure it out and just have a bit of fun. That wine's about a bit of fun. As a producer, I worked for a vineyard very close to the sea in my early days and had a lot of exposure to maritime vineyards. And with maritime vineyards, the key, I think, to a lot of what we do in South Africa is the fact that the ocean moderates our climate. We're in a position where we are fairly marginal. We are quite close to the equator relative to a lot of the other wine-producing countries around the world. And that influence of the ocean just allows us to make wines that have elegance, finesse, but also can have power depending on the style that one wants to follow. The other dynamic is you move away from the sea, that's where elevation plays such a role. And we've seen in the, the dynamic of the different vineyards we've been working with over the years, you actually can't really compare the two. They're so different in their own rights. One has to get into the nitty-gritty of why maritime works versus why altitude works. With the maritime influence, you get that moderating effect. But what the sea is going to do, it's going to moderate your daytime temperature, but it's also going to moderate your evening temperature or your nighttime temperature. So we've noticed in the past working with the maritime fruit with varieties like Chardonnay when I was still at Cape Point, we saw how we'd get an interesting flavor dynamic from that sort of cooler ripening period with the maritime influence, but we'd lose acidity. We'd have a lot of malic acid breakdown through the nights. The wines would come in and where you would expect from a cooler climate, you would have the acidity. We didn't necessarily see that. It was different with a variety that's naturally high in acid, like something like Sauvignon, for example. My initial experience in the industry was all based on maritime vineyards. I only knew Cape Point vineyards, a vineyard right on the ocean. And then when I started Savage Wines, I knew I couldn't get grapes as good as what we were getting from Cape Point from another maritime site. That's really a premier maritime site. And we started looking to more altitude pockets. Now, altitude is a relative term because if you compare to what guys are working with in Argentina in a place like Salta, I think Salta is over 2,000 meters above sea level. We don't have that kind of elevation. But then if you look at David Nevo, I think just over 1,000 meters, it's pretty high up. And if you look at the dynamic there, it's not that it's necessarily cool in the day. I don't know David's terroir like he does, but they have a diurnal shift. We see it in places we worked with. So Johan Rupert's property at Kaimanschat, you have elevation. There's that beautiful shift. You get those warm days, but the nights get cold. We've seen it in the Pekingese Kloof. In the Pekingese Kloof, we work with two separate vineyards there. One of them is on Parakop Buda, and then we go up into Tiro. The dynamic there, you're looking at around about 550 meters above sea level at one of the vineyards we work with at Parakop, and then you go up to over 700 meters above sea level in Tiro. And you can even just see the dynamic in terms of acidity and the way the wines show. We're picking Grenache in the Piganese Kloof on the Parakop Boudre, so the slightly lower elevation. And it gets bloody hot there in the day. But if you compare it to Piketberg down at the bottom, it's a lot cooler if you look at the average temperatures, but it still gets really warm there in the daytime. We just see that diurnal shift, and for some reason it works well with Grenache. There's also a guy by the name of Jaku Engelbrecht from Visual Viticulture. He's looked into all the solar radiations. A lot of people have been looking at it for years, but Yaku's drilled into specific areas. 
And if you look at the solar radiation in a place like the Pekingese Kloof, specifically there at Particle, it's really high relative to a lot of other countries. But you get this dynamic that somehow seems to work for varieties like Grenache. They're hardy, tough buggers, and they seem to really like that environment. But I think that diurnal shift is such a key. The interesting dynamic, a site that's possibly easier for me to see the differences is a site that's Tiruk higher up. Tiruk being 700 meters, there's more elevation. And I've also worked there with Shannon, Sauvignon, and some Syrah. So you see across three varieties, the influence of the elevation. So my other Syrah sites that are closer to the sea, we get a lot more wind. So it's cool as a result of that ocean influence of that constant southeast wind that gives them a hard time. So you see generally more spice in the wines. There's more of that sort of white pepper element which comes through with an inherent freshness you'd get from a maritime site. Whereas I've seen up in Tiro, for example, up at 700 meters, with Cyril, we get a, a depth of flavor, but not necessarily that spice. We get more sort of plums, red fruit, that kind of dynamic in the spectrum. But with incredible acidity, we can pick those grapes at 13 and a half, 14 potential alcohol, and we just have a line of acidity running through those wines. And often what happens is you harvest the grapes wherever you pick them, and there's fantastic acidity. You perceive the acidity, you analyze the acidity. But once you look at the breakdown between Tartaric and Malik, you realize that so much of that acidity is Malik, and once the wine's gone through malolactic, you end up with a wine that can be flabby. But the levels of acidity we get at altitude are just such that even going through mallow, we're able to showcase fantastic acidities. And I think the example that I've best seen is we only started making a straw wine a couple of years back. I think that 2018 was the first time we made a straw wine. And the interesting thing about that was we picked Shannon from the lowest part of a fairly unassuming vineyard. It's not all romantic sounding and that it's this old bush fine, gnarled 50-year-old vineyard. It's a youngish, trellised Shannon vineyard. But being at the low point of the farm, there's such an accumulation of cold air at night time there that the days can get incredibly warm. But at night, it gets bloody cold in that pocket. And I'm repicking Shannon at acids of 22 bulling, the equivalent of 13 alcohol with acids of almost 11, which for South African Shannon is almost unheard of. So once we dry that out, if I look at we're about to bottle the 2020 straw wine, it's, it's incredible. It's 320 grams of residual, yet it's got this searing acidity, which just gives you this perception of freshness. And if we had that self-same vineyard close to the ocean, we wouldn't get that acidity. If we had that vineyard in a warmer area, Further away from the ocean, but at a lower elevation, we obviously wouldn't get that freshness. Obviously, a lot of it also depends on soils. We're not working with a huge variety of soils. Most of our work is granitic and sandstone. The sites with elevation, and again, focusing on the Pekingese Kloof, we're dealing mostly there with sandstone-derived soils. Going down to some of the maritime pockets we're working with, there we're finding mostly granite, or at least the sites we like and the sites we're working with, we're getting a lot of granite through the profile. We've always favored the poorer granites, the more decomposed granites. We've had a lot of that quartz fraction breaking up, giving you that quite sandy profile. So you can imagine close to the ocean with a lot of wind, with a lot of sand through the profile and a clay layer further down. You've got that buffer with a clay layer, but naturally those vines stress as a result of that environment. And the maritime influence in Cape Town is extreme because we have the southeast wind. The southeaster can be so vicious in summertime. That plays such a role. Whereas as you move up into the Pekingese Kloof, you lose that influence of the southeaster to a certain extent. Not to say the guys don't get wind. There's plenty of wind up there. But it's not that vicious, salt-carrying wind that can often burn leaves and have a different impact. So you're getting this dynamic which changes and then moving on to sandstone-derived soils, especially up at Tiro. We see there 
If you look at a lot of the blocks, a lot of the soils that you'll see through a lot of the vineyards up there, there's quite a lot of almost sandstone, river pebble type stones in some of the parcels. And then obviously that sandy profile, there are little pockets of clay that pop up from time to time. There is a lot of varied elements to the soils that we deal with on the different parcels, but sandstone being the overriding soil. And I think the sandstone is a soil which will generally lead to a wine that's a little bit lighter and mouthfeel possibly, maybe have a little bit more aromatic. The dynamic we've seen with the soils, for example, and that sort of altitude element with that diurnal shift in terms of something like Sauvignon, we're getting that sort of upfront aromatic from the wines, which I think has a lot to do, obviously, with a combination of the site and the soil, but then that retention of that acidity again. Sometimes those sovials, you almost think, geez, we need to go through a bit of mallow here. And you can't even get the bloody things to go through mallow because your pHs are generally so low that it's quite a challenge. But it's, it's such a nice thing to be able to say in a warmer producing country like South Africa that sometimes the acids can almost be too high. Normally our problem is, is too low. So I was initially, when I started my business, looking to these different sites to complement one another from a blending point of view to sites with lower acidity to sites with higher acidity and bringing them together to get what we felt would be the right package. But then obviously what happens is if you're a wine person, you're a purist at heart, and you struggle to then blend everything. So now we've gone from the two wines to the eight wines because we want to have that site-specific element to the wine. So we can have a conversation like this where we're talking about a site that offers more acidity, more freshness, or whatever it brings to the wine, that pepper element that we get in the Syrah from close to the ocean. So it's been such a cool little journey to see how we get all the subtle little differences from these different pockets. What we find at Ellen's Kloof is that we get much more bolder fruit and fuller wines than what you get from the maritime vignettes. For instance, especially with the Sauvignon Blanc. Sometimes you get a very linear type of flavors from the maritime vignettes, where this gives us a much bolder and fuller fruit structure in the wine. Dauskogel is a fantastic property that we bought in the most southern tip of Africa near Cape Agalas in 2007. And that's obvious, complete different soil types. So a lot of chalky soils and ferrocrete and 12 kilometers from the most southern tip of South Africa. That's by far the coldest spot in South Africa. So the kept secret for Sauvignon Blanc, in my opinion, but completely different from Cedarburg. You can't compare them. So on Sauvignon Blanc, the big difference for me, if you taste those two wines, you understand continental and maritime influence. So the continental one, the Cedarburg, much more mineral, steely, tropical. So they've got that citrus tropical element that's actually very trendy, I say, this stage. Then Ghost Corner is the closest that you will get to a much more New Zealand style of Sauvignon in South Africa much lower temperatures or day temperatures than up here. So they're much fatter, more glycerol. One characteristic of Cape Agalas or Elam is dustiness. It's that dusty mineral, a little bit more asparagus or canned white asparagus style. So they're a little bit richer, they're a little bit more in your face, much more complex on palate, where the Cedarburg is more linear but clean. But that's always two phenomenal examples of great Sauvignon from South Africa. And both got fantastic reputations. I mean, it's not because we produce Ghost Corner, but this is by far the leading South African Sauvignon internationally at this stage. And the most consistent Sauvignon is probably the Cedarburg Sauvignon.
The altitude is just one part of what makes these sites special. Other aspects, such as the soils, water, and wind, also affect growing conditions, just as they do with vineyards anywhere in the world. So while there is a common thread of elevation between sites like Cedarburg, Pekinierskloof, and Eilenskloof, they're still each quite individual. This is the most uniquely situated wine estate in South Africa, and there's a reason for that, because Cedarburg, it's, it's 180,000 hectares unspoiled. It's also a World Heritage Site. And because it's in private property since 1893, we're the only vineyard up in the Cedarburg Mountains as well. And I think the biggest advantage is soil by far. Eh? We've got this beautiful ancient shale soils up in the mountains. We've got a lot of sandstone. We've got coffee clip. We've got a lot of different soil types on different slopes and different aspects. So I think that's probably one of the biggest advantages. Then air movement, you must understand Cedarburg, it's a little valley on top of a mountain. That's what's so unique about it. It's, say, seven miles by four miles. You've got a massive amount of air movement. And this is the biggest cooling effect of Cedarburg. And that's why it's a really cool continental spot that we've got up here. And then probably water. Water is becoming a big issue in South Africa. And we're the first users of this clean water from hundreds of springs. So this was one of the only properties that wasn't really affected by the 2016 and 17 drought in South Africa. So big advantages, amazing soil types, predominantly shale, air movement, which is a huge cooling effect, and then water. The terroir at Ellenskloof is just exceptional. It's so cool climate that when everybody's finished harvesting here in South Africa, we only open the doors to the cellar for that part of the world right at the end of March. It is very cool and gives you incredible flavors because of the longer hang time on the vines. We definitely find that the flavor profile in the wines are considerably different to other wines around South Africa because they so cool climate. The soil types there are Tukulu and decomposed shale along with Table Mountain sandstone. Those are the three types. It's very deep red soils, so very high in iron content and so on. And that you get up in these mountains so high up as well. And the summer temperatures there never go over 30 degrees in a day. It's just too high up. So you got this very cool climate, and that is why you get a much longer hang time, because the grapes are at this cool temperature the whole time, and they take much longer to ripen. We get a very good winter rainfall. It's about 1,800 millimeters per year, so it's quite high. It is one of the very few vineyards in South Africa where it snows every year because of the elevation. And we got the most beautiful photographs of the snow in those vineyards almost every year. It's just incredible to see that. Especially so we get very cold winters. The water that we got in our dam there is all from snow. It is the most pristine water that you can think of. It is so pristine 
that it hasn't got actually any calcium in it because it runs off so quickly and into the catchment area where we are. So you've got this fantastic origin of the water which you're using in your vineyard. You never have to worry about the quality of water or anything like that. You can go to the dam and you can take a cup and you can just drink it. That is how clear the water is and how fantastic it is. If I look at some of the mountainous areas, not necessarily the Pekingese Cliff, because that's been very dry in the drought, but some of the mountainous areas do naturally get a bit more rainfall. So a place like Ultima, for example, it was tough, but they did have available water. And I think that the vines handled fairly well. Pekingese Cliff, we did see the vines struggle quite a bit. But there the dynamic was different because we were working with a vineyard that's almost 50 years old. It's the most beautiful vineyard. We panicking, running around, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? The drought, the vines are going to die. They've seen it all before. They've seen the drought. They've seen the times. So we noticed those vineyards didn't physically look that much worse. They just went into survival mode. So they just had less fruit. And I think that was the thing. The vines close to the sea that were young looked like they were going to die. And we had to seriously intervene. The old vines, they just weathered the storm. They just shed their fruit, said, okay, guys, let's knuckle down. Let's get this sorted out. We started getting rain. We've seen this year the crop level go up. Next year, we'll probably see a close to normal crop. So the factors are too great to draw one factor. There's so many elements. And also the other fact is those older vines in the Pekingese Cliff, most of them are dry land. So they already hardened, they had to survive, they already had to push roots down to do their thing. If they were getting irrigation and you suddenly took that away, then even a 40-year-old vineyard is going to take strain and, and possibly could even die. On the Pekingese front with elevation, the guys planted two years ago a 15-hectare young block with a southerly aspect. And we've only been working with Grenache with a northerly aspect. So you've got elevation, warm days, northerly aspect, cooler nights. Now we've suddenly got this other site, which the solar radiation is a little lower. It's technically supposed to be a slightly cooler site. There were grapes on that vineyard in the second year. A mate of mine and I were there, and we decided, let's ask the farmer, let's just make a ton of this just for the hell of it. And I brought this year a ton into the cellar. And I can't tell you how amazing. We all write Grenache off when it's young. We all say, Grenache, you need to make rosé for the first 30 years and start making proper wine thereafter. But this young vineyard, I know it's not anything to go by, but I said to the farmer, I'm quite keen to start working with that every year, even if it's just on a small basis to see where it goes. Because we tasted the barrels this afternoon and the perfume in that wine is just insane. It's incredible. You know, Grenache is such a tricky variety because it's so versatile. It's grown in so many places around the world. It makes great wines in so many different places. But in South Africa, I feel like it's quite site-specific and it really likes that dynamic in the Pekingese Club. Like we've played around with some Grenache and Darling, for example, and there you've got the maritime influence. It's just not the same. We don't get the same fruit profile. We don't get that same sort of brightness in the profile. We don't get the same structure in the wine. I'm, I'm not a scientific person, so it's very difficult for me to give you the scientific explanation of why it is. It just seems to work. We've seen in South Africa, obviously, a lot of vines being uprooted in favor of citrus and, and what have you. And obviously, what we're fighting in the Pekingese Kloof is the fact that rooibos tea is not doing as well now, but it has done well in the past. Citrus is absolutely flying. But anyone who's got open land, they're generally favoring citrus long ahead of grapes. But there are guys like Billy Erasmus who prepared to try something interesting and have planted now more Grenache. 
And we said to them, we think that area is the home of not only Grenache Noir, but Grenache Blanc too. There's a couple of growers that have got Grenache Blanc up there, and it's fantastic. Another variety that does very well up there is Palomino. You don't need the region to be a one-stop wine shop. You don't need to have Cabernet up there. You don't need to have Sauvignon and all of that, albeit varieties that are more commercially appealing in the grand scheme of things. We believe that a lot of producers need to put their weight behind the area that is the Pekingese Kloof and focus on the greatness of what can be Pekingese Kloof Grenache, whether it's white or red. Cedarburg is much colder than Pekingese Kloof. That's the reason why we don't get any maritime influence up in Cedarburg, because Pekingese Kloof is basically a range between the coast and Cedarburg. Pekingese Kloof haven't got very cold nights because they're much closer to the Atlantic Ocean but they've got much more gravel and sandstone soil. And there's no water up in Pekingeerskloof, so it's completely dryland vineyards. So you must farm a lot of bush vines. You can't really use trellis vineyards. Pekingeerskloof is a fantastic climate and soils, but the restriction is water. That's why they've got completely different varietals there as well. So, for instance, Sauvignon Blanc will not work up in Pekingeerskloof. It's not the right climate. It's bushfine Sauvignon. And you can't stress Sauvignon Blanc. So you need to have supplementary irrigation. Shannon's doing exceptionally well up in Pekingeerskloof because of the soil. And it's enough water for Shannon to survive. Slightly thicker skins than up in Cedarburg. So different profile, more that apple type of richer profile of Shannon. That's doing exceptionally well. Pekingeerskloof, that's the spot in South Africa for Grenache. It's enough water for Grenache to survive. They struggle to survive, but they're very concentrated. So Grenache, Sinso, and probably Pinotage even up in Pekingeerskloof is the three varietals that I would say will do very well. Shiraz again, you can do bushfire Shiraz, but they ripen too late and they really in dry years, they don't get physiological ripeness up in Pekingese Kloof. So that's why as the crow flies, like probably about 50 kilometers from us, but complete different climate. Elands Kloof, they've got obvious much more rain. And I think that the charm of Elands Kloof is again the isolation and soil. I'm not an expert on Elands Kloof, but I know the area very well. I think it's a Chardonnay mega. I had a few Elands Kloof Chardonnays actually over the weekend. And you can pinpoint them. I think Sauvignon will do well in Elands Kloof. I had actually a Sauvignon from Elands Kloof as well. So the Sauvignons from Elands Kloof they're very herbaceous. they like dried feinbos, like dried herbs. So they've got this beautiful aromatic profile on nose. And they're quite big on palate. I would say, and it's sorry for that, they haven't got the finesse for me on palate. But they've got this amazing concentration of aromatic components. But Chardonnay and Ilan's Kloof, I think that's the way to go. They've got enough water. If there's attention to detail in winemaking in Ilan's Kloof, that area can boom. It was out and out because of the climatic conditions there. And he knew if he bought that farm that he could actually do something very special, especially with the Pinot Noir, Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc, which are all cool climate varietals. So because they were young vines, we let the Pinot Noir become nine years old before we made our first vintage still wine. Before that, that all goes to sparkling wine. We're still using a lot of the Pinot Noir and the Chardonnay 
from Ultima into our base wines. And I would think that if you taste the Lormorand's base sparkling wines, you can see that freshness in them. And that freshness is coming from this very low pHs in these wines. You can take the Pinot Noir, you can take the Chardonnay, you can take the Sauvignon Blanc. A Sauvignon Blanc coming in at 23 bricks has got a pH of 3 and an acidity of 10.5 grams per liter tartaric acid. It is absolutely incredible. Now you're going to say to me, but Jeff, how the hell do you handle the acidity? It's very easy. You take the grapes, you crush and destem them, cool them down to 8 degrees, and you leave them on the skins for 24 hours. You absorb the potassium, then binds with the tartaric acid and becomes cream of tartar, and that drops the acidity naturally. And then the pH stays where it is because you've got hydrogen ions that are coming into the wine. So I don't want to become chemically whatever, but it's actually absolutely incredible that these wines keep their freshness because of these very low pHs in the wine. But as the vineyards have got older, we've now taken some of the Pinot Noir to still a Pinot Noir, which is really a beautiful wine. It's got the most incredible, lovely, fresh, red, bright berry, red berry color to it. And then the Chardonnay we use in our Cape of Good Hope as a site-specific wine. So we've got a site-specific Pinot Noir still wine called Snewcrans, and then we got the Paper Good Hope Chardonnay, which is a very Burgundian style of Chardonnay. We do not overwood it for the simple reason that we want the terroir to speak in the wine, not the wood. So we do ferment in wood, but not uh, a lot of new wood. That's only about 5% is new wood. The rest is all first, second, and third full. And then the Ultima Sauvignon Blanc, which has been exceptional ever since we started making it in 2012. On grape varietals, we're busy with a massive replanting up in Cedarburg. We really start using top technology that's electroconductivity in soils that I've been involved with in Chile and Argentina for about 13 years. There's not a single farm in South Africa that's using it. So we've mapped this whole property We've got roughly about 85 hectares of high potential soil. We've mapped it electronically to the centimeter. We know exactly what's happening underneath our feet now. And we're busy with a big replanting. After 23 years, I've learned a lot about air movement, row direction, wind direction, sun direction. So we can do everything much more to precision. The advantage, again, of high elevation vineyards is long hanging time where you get great physiological ripeness. And in my opinion, that is one of the crucial things where international markets like, for instance, the U.S. criticize us sometimes and say our wines are relatively green, like on Cabernet, but because they ripen too fast. So you must speak because of the sugar content, but your grapes is not physiological ripe. Your tannin structures, it's green. So we concentrate much more on the reds, on light ripening reds, Cabernet and specifically Shiraz. So Shiraz, we're very well known for Shiraz, and that's one of the varietals with the replanting that we actually start planting 
much more against the more south and southeastern facing slopes to get different profiles in wines as well. So they've got very low pHs and high natural acidities. That's the real nice thing. So if you think of varietals, you think about freshness, higher natural acidities for a South African producer. So on whites that we're quite known for, the main concentration is on Sauvignon Blanc and Chenin. It's the only continental Sauvignon in South Africa, wine with a great reputation. It's much more clean cut, fresh and alive. And the same with the Chenin that's doing exceptionally well, specifically in the US. Chenin is mostly planted in warmer regions in South Africa. And I've always described the Cedarburg Chenin as the only cool climate Chenin. They're completely different profile. They have much higher natural acidities. They're much more alive. So it's much more citrus style of Chenin, more citrus mineral style of Sauvignon. And then on the reds with late ripening varietals like Syrah's Cabernet, we plant now with the new replanting a little bit of Grenache and a little bit of Cabernet Franc as well. As more as experiment, but also on the right, more black shale spots. So mostly on the more red shales, we plant much more Syrah's. They really got this beautiful ripe tannin structures, although they've got very high natural dry extracts. So it's quite big wines, but they're juicy, they're fresh, they're alive. And this is what set them apart from most Shirazes, for instance, in South Africa. They're spicy, they're a little bit peppery, very aromatic wine. And that's the beauty of elevation is your wines, they're fresh, they're aromatic, they're clean. They've got this beautiful texture, tannin profiles. Bukatrava, this is the hidden gem up in Cedarburg. It's the oldest man-made crossing on the planet. This was the first cross done in 1864 in Germany, in Franconia. And it's a German crossing that moved via Alsace to South Africa. And everybody thought it's Alsatian varietal, but it's actually a German Franconian varietal. And when I came here in 1998, we had two hectares of Bukatrava, and I thought, what the hell is this? My grandfather planted it in the 80s. And it became super popular. So the total area planted under Bukatrava in the world is just 42 hectares. We've got 11 of that. And the reason why it died out completely, because it's very sensitive to downy mildew. And because we haven't got any downy mildew up in Cedarburg, we still want to keep this varietal alive. And it's completely different flavor profile from the warmer region. So it's very delicate, muscat, floral, peachy, apricot. Got a little touch of residual sugar. Beautiful with spicy foods, Thai curries, more mature cheeses. And it's actually our best-selling wine in the USA today. Eh? It's a little rock star wine. So um, look out for Cedarburg Bukatrava. It's coming. For me, it's quite interesting that we not produce just generic wines anymore. Part of our replanting as well is to find the Cedarburg style and that we don't copy trends, that we produce really phenomenal wines that suits the areas. I think that is one thing in South Africa at this stage. There's an amazing amount of small micro terroirs and we need to find more focus on these terroirs and that people can start tasting sight and soil and not just generic wines. Traditionally, it was just easy to plant in the flat areas around Stellenbosch and Swartland and Paul, but 
there's some fantastic small little pockets. It's like Chile for me. I work a lot in Chile. And if you look at Chile and see the small micro terroirs and what's happening in South Africa with these small micro terroirs where people really start making site-specific wines, that is super interesting. While these high elevation areas represent the cutting edge of exploring new terroirs in South Africa, the value of elevation is being played with even in some of the more mainstream areas like Stellenbosch and Franschhoek. A 100 meter difference can mean a full degree Fahrenheit difference in average temperature, so there are plenty of reasons to explore. Even at Lomerans, we've gone off the valley floor completely and up the mountainside. So we've got some of the highest vineyards just here at Lomerans, which are very close to 500 meters above sea level, which is quite high. And those are Sauvignon Blanc vineyards and also Pinot Grigio vineyards. And there's a Shiraz vineyard, which is very close to 580 meters. It's this very small vineyard up here in the mountain. And it's also Western in aspect. And it gives us incredible fruit just coming from that small little patch, which we keep separate every year. So there is a lot of people that are looking how to go higher, but it's not possible for a lot of people. It's very expensive. Just to put the roads there is very difficult to do. And then you have to, for instance, on these slopes, you've got contours. And you've got to be very mindful how you contour those very steep slopes that you do not get any water damage on the roads, but within the vineyards. Because if you get a lot of rain, like we've had overnight today, I, I can tell you you've got big problems if you haven't got good contours and so on, taking the water away from those vineyards. All these contours are all sloping back towards the mountain, that the water can't go over the front of them because... When they go over the front, it just erodes completely and it will wash away the vineyards down at the bottom. So you've got to have your contours almost looking back towards the mountainside. If you understand that the water we catch at the back and take away in gutters there. There's a beautiful book that came out recently, which got a very good mention by the OIV and there the contours of Ultima, the photographs of those beautiful contours there, because the guy said, I've never seen contours like this before. And it is really absolutely beautiful. Thanks to the drought, which ran from 2015 to 2018, and other factors, South Africa's overall vineyard land has shrunk of late, down to 92,000 hectares from over 100,000 hectares just a decade ago. With that being the case, why are growers seeking out new spots rather than working with sites that are already known and established? I would think that it was actually driven by looking for new styles, okay, and, and site-specific wines. So that is what I would think was the driver in the early days. But now, naturally, with climate change and so on, that farm is quite incredible to see the differences now in the last five years. It's incredible to see... Temperature differences, not so much in the rainfall, but definitely in the temperature, what is going on. If we think that climate change is not happening, then you're totally wrong. Climate change is definitely with us. And it's the way we have to manage it and going up into cooler areas 
is one of the best ways of taking hold of the climate change. So that is definitely what's driving it more now. But the idea of having good site-specific wines from very special areas at high altitude is definitely on the cards. You'll see quite a lot of people are now planting vineyards up in Cirrus, which is very close to uh, a thousand meters as well, uh, at sea level, all in Apple area, all Pinot and Chardonnay. So people are looking for very special areas to make special styles of wine. We always like to get an American perspective on the wines that we're talking about. So in this case, I turned to David Quathme down at Grape and Bean in Virginia and uh, sent him a few wines from some of these higher elevation vineyards in South Africa. David, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me today. I was glad to uh, hear from you and uh, excited to talk about some South African wines. Let's see. I, we went down to South Africa together uh, a few years ago, wasn't it? Many years ago. It was a great experience. I uh, had never been to South Africa before. And so to actually see some of the, the places and really try a, a great number of wines was a great experience for me and came back and brought back stories and tasted a lot of wine with our guests and glad to share those stories. Is it a region that you've kept up with since then? It's funny. There's an ebb and flow to what's in the news, perhaps, and in terms of wine styles and winemaking. And to a certain extent, we follow those trends and try to find wines that we think people enjoy that are current. We also have wines of tradition, too. And I would say that there's a range of wines from South Africa that have done very well for us, both for tasting glass wines at the wine bar environment and for people who are taking wines home for, for use at home and for meals and things of that nature. And to say also that the South African wines offer a range of wines that can be less expensive everyday wines that are very accessible. And then we have some examples that are very special wines that may be more for special occasions or special meals and things of that nature. So it's a really good part of our portfolio to have. In this case, we're tasting wines from areas we weren't able to travel to since they're a little bit out of the main wine limit. So this is a chance for you to taste some different things. The first one of the three we sent you is the Defendel. The winery is actually in Durbanville, which you might have made it to. I'm not sure, just north of Cape Town. But they've mm. started sourcing from some vineyards in Ceres, which is quite a bit inland and obviously high altitude. These are, I think, over seven or 800 meters in elevation. And this was their Pinot Noir. How, how was this showing? It's good. It's uh, It definitely had lots of cherry flavor and a bright acidity there. There's spice there. Again, not knowing the vineyard site's particular and knowing how difficult Pinot Noir can be, I'm not surprised they're having more success at the higher elevations there. It, it has definitely a unique character in the nose to me that um, was something other than Pinot Noir that I'm familiar with for, say, Burgundy or Oregon or California. So, uh, again, I'll need more practice to understand what the nuances are. It might be from the winemaking or the soils and the place that it comes from. But it's a, a very nice wine. And I want to say it, it had some vestiges that remind me of some Pinotage in some way. And I, I think that might be attributable to soils or other things, but not sure. But it is a wine that might surprise some guests, again, depending on what their experiences are with Pinot Noir, 
And that's to say focus tasting and putting it in context for people is probably an important thing for those who may be less familiar with South African wines. Interesting. Is that that Pinotage relationship, is that in that sort of smokiness? I have gotten that on some vintages of this wine. Yeah, it has that. And it's hard to put my finger on it exactly. But it is of a flavor style that, again, I'm not sure if it's attributable just to the soils or if there's a winemaking thumbprint that's there that's a nod to something from before. The grape's completely different. So I have to think it's one of those factors or potentially how the Pinot behaves in that particular elevation and so forth. Very well could be. Now, the second wine we sent was a Shiraz, and that is actually from Cedarburg. So this mm-hmm. is the highest elevation area in the Western Cape and not far from Ceres, really, just mm-hmm. a neighboring area. And they have a lot of experience at this altitude. Yeah. They've been around for decades, so one of the early explorers of high altitude vineyards. How is this showing? For sure, out of the glass, a big nose of fruit and spice and the thread of oak there. There's an herbaceousness there, too, that I'm not sure if it's a wild herb that comes through. But medium plus body, just loads of fruit, lots of dark fruit flavors to me. But also there's some blue and maybe plum there as well that I put in my notes. The oak was present, but not intrusive. There's alcohol, acidity there. This wine benefits from age and probably could get better with even more age, I would say. Another wine that definitely tastes South African to me, and again, a surprising maybe Syrah Shiraz for people to try who are less familiar with South African wines. I would definitely put it with foods. I think it will show much better versus on its own by the glass. Um, and it's uh, full throttle. It's a big wine for people who love a, a big, generous glass for sure. Mm-hmm. We talked about Shiraz as being a more Australian expression versus a Roman expression. Does that put it more on the Australian camp to you? You know, it's still something unique, and I don't put it in that world because I think of the Australian as being even further in terms of the ripeness. There's something about the roundness and that volume, which can be extreme at times. Mm-hmm. So I think this still has some nuance to it that I would say is separates it from the Australian version. Okay. And then... Our final wine is a, not a varietal wine, but actually a blend, but largely based around Grenache. And actually for the podcast, I talked to, to Duncan Savage and the eventual plan is for this to become a varietal Grenache. It's just been a matter of yields and the drought not permitting that. But this is the Thief in the Night from Duncan Savage. How is this showing? Of the three, I really enjoyed this the most on that day, as any particular day when you open a wine and depending on the factors around you. I found this wine to be really spectacular and it had for me a ripe blend of bright berry fruit flavors, but even from the beginning, there was a delicious richness and acidity to balance it. It had a very smooth, rich mouthfeel and really a delicious finish. I feel as it it gained some time in the glass, that volume even got bigger and then there was a mineral presence that opens up. I'm not familiar with his vineyard site for this particular grape varietals, but to me, it just it really shined on that day. And I've had some of those Savage wines before, and I'm very impressed with the work they're doing. I think, again, I don't know if it's a stylistic thing or the fruit. I think it's probably a little of both because we're dealing with different grape varietals. But there's clear skill, I think, in the winemaking that's happening that's drawing me to that wine. I've tried some of his whites and reds in the past, and I find them pretty exciting, and I hope people will give them a try. Great. 
Now, I think talking about high elevation in vineyards in South Africa, we're at the beginning of this exploration, but is there anything across these three wines? This is a very small sample set, but that you think might give an idea what the general identifying element of such wines might be? Hard for me to say, but what I've seen in other vineyard areas in other countries is the change in temperature that allows for a longer growing season to achieve the optimal ripeness. So the extent that you can get complexity out of the juice that comes from these grapes that have a longer season, also potentially the intensity of sunshine that's there that develops as well might be the factor that goes across vineyard sites and grape varietals that compared to other examples of the same varietals, again, at lower elevations, that would really tell, I would think, over time what that factor is doing. And of course, the farming practices and canopy management, I would think, have a lot to do with that as well. So I I think it's still new. I, I don't feel like I've seen wines from South Africa necessarily put into categories of high elevation. And maybe that's to come as they're exploring more planting and we can do a tasting at some point across high elevation wines or comparatives with other examples. And uh, that might play out to be, but it seems to me that where great wine grapes grow, they're usually beautiful places and the high on the hill places oftentimes produce exceptional character compared to others. So I would think that would hold true for South African wines as well. I hope you enjoyed this look at South Africa's high elevation vineyards. You can find more resources and links to the producers we talked to at our website, wosa.us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends. Or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it and discover South African wines. Next episode, we're going to look at a grape that's only found in a few small spots within South Africa. In fact, it only makes up 1.4% of the country's vineyards. It's notoriously fickle, but it's definitely a highly regarded, noble variety. Next episode, we'll take on South African Pinot Noir.